Romans 13, let's read again the text um, on which we've been meditating and studying the last three Sundays, including now today, the fourth. Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me once more? Father, we thank you this morning that uh, in the heavenlies, in your holy space, a A miracle of miracles has occurred in our midst. Our sinful mouths, having been purified by the application of the coals of the altar, have offered to you praises that you are due, and you have received them. You have heard our words of confession and prayer that sing of your greatness, that speak of your steadfastness, the fact that you are steady, you are a rock in a world of shifting sand, and your mercy is greater than all my sin. Father, these are great declarations both to remind and teach one another of and also to speak in your glory. We bring you honor and praise and glory because of what you have done and because of who you are. You put the breath in our lungs. How could we do anything less than to exhale that gift of life and extol your virtues. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you through the studying of your scriptures, we ask that you would open our minds, fill them with your word and with your truth, and you'd soften our hearts, stamp them, if you will, with the, the burning sign or seal of your presence, motivate our will to obey that which we have learned, and humble our pride 
where we think too highly of ourselves when we ought not. Father, if these four simple things are accomplished in the next 30 or 45 minutes, in the unseen regions of our mind, will, heart, oh Lord, it would have been a great, great day. And so by the strength of your inspired word, we ask that you would do so. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. May be seated. Love is love. Love wins every time. One team, one community, one love. Love is my religion. Who we are is love. Love, not hate. These are among the most popular slogans from last year's Pride Month celebrations. Sadly, while many of them sound good, they seem helpful, they appear as kindness, this version of love is poison labeled as medicine. This version of love encourages pride in an identity and practice that breeds loneliness, depression, drug abuse, and disease. It cannot naturally procreate. It promises much but delivers little. It dishonors the individual created in God's image. It confuses the emotions and panders to predatory behavior. Most tragically, this version of love ushers its participants into eternal damnation. At this point in history, most likely everyone in this room is related to someone or loves someone deeply who is caught up in the LGBTQ revolution, myself included. What the mouthpieces of this movement claim is that the height of hate is for you and I to stand on biblical texts and say, this way of life leads to misery on earth and doom in eternity. This way of life you promote leads to misery now and judgment later. Loneliness now and eternal separation from your heavenly creator later. It promises much and delivers little. A compassionate and truthful statement is deemed the height of hate by those who say, love is love, love wins every time, one team, one community, one love, love is my religion, we, who we are is love, love not hate. 
In spite of these claims, the Christian in 2023 must stand, perhaps with tears in our eyes, certainly with grief in our heart, shedding any ounce of pride and firmly declare this. To be at peace with God, one cannot walk the steps of evil. To be in the light, one cannot live in the darkness. To be called a Christian, one cannot embrace unbiblical sensuality. Now, that's a heavy, uh, a heavy opening statement. But these are the cards that we have been dealt. These are the times in which we live. Both in terms of the scripture that is before us in Romans 13, and also the day that we occupy the earth. We must, therefore, be equipped by the scriptures with the uncompromising truth of God's standards for his people. We must be equipped to model these standards, propagate them to the next generation, and declare them to a lost and dying world. Christian love is unique from the love promised and promoted by those who walk in darkness. Here in this closing section of Romans 13, Paul instructs us to love God and love your neighbor, and as such, you fulfill the whole of the law. He compels us to see the urgency using phrases that we just read. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. The hour has come. Wake from your sleep. Salvation is nearer today than it was when you first believed. He uses these phrases to, be, to in, invoke in us a sense of urgency to the task. Either your days on earth are short or the days on earth are short before Jesus returns. Either way, urgent is the task before us. Love God and love neighbor. Finally, in the closing verses, 12, 13, and 14, Paul makes clear the specifics of love. It is not enough to love or to say, I love you, we must define it and be sure that our definition is biblically informed. And so, this is part three of the series, The Law of Love. We'll call this The Specifics of Love, if you are one to take notes. And so, what do the specifics of Christian love involve? Well, number one, what we put off. What do the specifics of Christian love involve? Well, they involve, first and foremost, what we Put off. In the story of the prodigal son, there's a, a beautiful picture of, of a son who is wayward. Many of you know the story. A son wished to receive his inheritance that he would get from his dad when his dad passes away. He says, Dad, I want my cash now. And uh, dad says, Okay, son. Now, this was a great insult to the father, and yet the father took it on the chin. This was, a, this was, in essence, the son saying to the father, I wish you were dead so I could have my money. And the father goes, okay, son, 
and he gives him his inheritance. The son goes away off to what's described as essentially a, a city, the city, and he lives it up, right? And his wealth buys him some friends. He drinks and parties and lives in sexual depravity until all of his money is dried up and his friends disappear. He finds himself um, poor, homeless, living in the city, working for a farmer who would not even let him eat the pig's feed as a snack. And he says, I, I should go home to my dad. I know my dad at least lets his servants eat food while they work. I'm going to go back and I'm going to say to my dad, Dad, I'm sorry, I failed. I, 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 I brought, you know, uh, dishonor to your name and to our family. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just, just hire me on as a servant. And, uh, and so he makes his way back home, having determined that he's, he's, he's got his, his speech all planned out, right? And you can imagine, he's walking and he's rehearsing his speech. He's, he's walking and he's rehearsing his speech. Only two more miles to go, right? Can you imagine the sun? The, those anxious butterflies in the stomach as you get closer and closer, right? Certain topographical parts of the countryside become to be more and more familiar. He's walked past that post many times. He's climbed that tree when he was a child. And he gets closer and closer to his childhood home. And if you will, the, the height of, of the, the fear, the unknown, how is his father to respond to him? Only before he can even get to the, to the house and knock on the door and hope to be able to have audience with his father, his, his dad sees him coming a long way off. And he has compassion on his son and he rushes out to meet him. And the son begins his rehearsed speech. Dad, I've brought dishonor on the family name, and I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against God, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. And about mid-speech, Dad cuts him off, and he says, hush. He calls the servants over, kill a fatted calf, which to us just sounds terrible, right? It's time for a party, let's kill something. But I mean, it's time for a feast, right? Let's have a feast. And what does he do? He says, bring the robe, right? Bring out the robe. Put the ring on his finger. My son who was dead is alive. This, along with many other scriptures in the Old and New Testament, make clear that this imagery of clothing being taken off and clothing being put on is deeply, deeply symbolic to the nature of the person. Right? Do you remember at the beginning of the year when we studied baptism? It took a couple of weeks to study the, the history and the meaning of baptism and how historically 
Uh, the Christians who, who were newly converted would, would come down like this rug to the banks of a river. They would remove their old clothing. They would go down into the water. They would be baptized, immersed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they wouldn't go back for their old clothes. No, in fact, they would come up the other side of the bank. They would be adorned with white clothing. The old clothes would go away, and the new Christians would be escorted through the city streets so that everyone who was watching would see the new white clothing, and they would know that person is not the same as before. Beautiful picture, right? That's just one more example of how the Bible and the history of the church constantly compels us to take off these clothes and put on these clothes. Do not be clothed in X, but be clothed in Y. And so, as Paul seeks to communicate to the church what it means to love God and love neighbor, he includes this imagery. You must put off the old clothing. The old clothing, which is representative of your new life or your old life, and be clothed in that which is representative of the new. And so what do we put off? Well, the list is quite simple. Paul summarizes the old life of sin and darkness using one, two, three, four, basically four phrases. The first word that he uses is, is translated into the English as orgies in the, New, in the King James Version. I believe that the word is revelry. That's a better, in my opinion, translation. The first thing that we are to put off is revelry. He says, cast off the works of darkness. Revelry is what Exodus 32, 25 translates into broken loose. When the people worshipped the golden calf, they had broken loose. And casting off all restraint, all inhibition. This isn't drunkenness, but it certainly includes the loosening of temperance that accompanies drunkenness. No, this is carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Or YOLO, as the kids say. Or probably used to say, and no one says it anymore. But that's what happens when you, you know, well, when you are rapidly approaching 40, that's what happens, friends. I need to sit down for a minute. No, it's the casting off of any sense of restraint. It's giving in to whatever, whatever craving you might have. And of course, by dint of its context, we understand it to be incredibly sensual, sexual, and alcoholic in its nature. Because the very next phrase that Paul uses is drunkenness. So casting off this revelry, this reckless abandon. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3.9. He says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have 
put off the old self with its practices, that's past tense, and have put on the new self, past tense, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You have put off the old self and you have put on the new self. Since you have, this speaks of your position. You are in Christ, repentant, confessing, believing, trusting him for rescue from sin's stranglehold on you and the consequences of it. You have put on Christ. You have been clothed like the son who has returned, like the baptized individual. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But if we consider what Paul also writes in Ephesians 4, He says this, beginning in verse 19, they, speaking of those who walk, if you will, in darkness, as Paul uses the phrase, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, here we have two cities that are near each other, Colossae and Ephesus. Paul writes to the Christians in both of those towns. In one letter, he says, since you have put this off, And you have put on Christ, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. Now go and do. And then in another letter, he says, you are to put off your old self, and you are to put on the new self. So which is it? Have you been or are you to? You get my point? Well, that's position and practice. Positionally speaking, what has been accomplished is done. You have been robed in the glory and righteousness of Christ, meaning he accomplished everything required to be at peace with God, and that has been blanketed over you, Christian. But practically, this is only the beginning. It's not the end. It's not the finish line. It's the start line. In the saving act... God clothes you with the righteousness of Jesus. That means when he sees you, he sees not your sins. He sees not your past life of mockery and sensuality and self-absorption and greed. That's my list. I don't know what your list might be. That's just mine. He sees you, dear child, draped in the perfect life of Jesus the Christ. This is a great work of God, a great gift from God. This has been done. You have put off and you have put on. It has been done. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more, right? But of course, then Francis Schaeffer asks the the question of the century, how should we then live? Since this is the case, Colossians, how should we then live? And the answer comes in the simplest of terms, learn to be who you are, right? 
I mean, I like a good word. Like, I like those good, like, you know, 25-cent words or whatever you call it, where you have to, like, you got to get a dictionary or else you're not exactly sure what I was saying. I like good words. I like the English language. I wish I had a better hold on it. Imbibe. But at the end of the day, friends, the Christian life is as simple as that. Learn to be who you are. If you are in Christ, every day from now until you're home going to be with him for eternity, your objective is to learn to be who you are. It's a a great phrase in its simplicity, but also in its implications. That means today, Christian, even though you've been walking with the Lord for 10 years or 5 months or 50 years, that means today that no, no matter where you've grown, there is always more learning to be who you have become. There is always more learning to be who you are. It is a perpetual effort until you are called home. And that's great news because you know you're still kind of a sinful butthead sometimes, right? My kids are like, Dad. It's true. It's just right. It's true. And so it's simple, but it also has a great implication. Learn to be who you are. You are draped in Christ. Learn to walk in his footsteps. You are clothed in his righteousness. Now, listen, it is your duty. It is your duty to exercise your will to flee the sins of your youth and walk in newness of life. This is not a burden. It is a gift. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 4. Over to the right, a handful of books. If you reach Revelation, you've gone too far. But you'll be almost there. First John four. Beginning in verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means satisfaction. He satisfied the requirement. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another and God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God 
The love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us, so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is so, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, verse 18, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, verse 19, because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him, so we love each other. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and look and obey his commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Friends, we go through this reading of some you know, 15 verses or more to simply recognize something very clear. 1 John 4 talks a lot about love, right? Love God, love neighbor, love God, love neighbor. And then chapter 5, it makes it crystal clear. What does this mean? Obey his commandments. What is love? Obey his commandments. And this is not a burden. It's a gift. Friends, there is no version of being made into Christ's image without the image of evil being eliminated from us. There is no version of being made into Christ's image without also the image of evil being eliminated from us. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. That's our human humanity, our humanness, that part of us that we still wrestle with, that part of ourselves that is bent on sin. Paul says, make no provision for it. Put it off and put on Christ. We aren't to feed our sinful fleshiness. We are to starve it. We aren't to coddle our little sins or our secret sins. We are to wage war against them. This isn't legalism. It almost sounds legalistic, but it's no legalism to simply quote the scriptures that call us to holy living. You are to put these things off, and you are to put on Christ. The holy living to which Paul calls us is humble. It is accomplished in Christ, and our life is fueled by the life of Christ in us. Last night, my family and I read Exodus 29. And ever since we did, I've been tempted to read it with you. Exodus 
Here Paul, excuse me, here Moses is being commanded on how he is to ordain, set apart. The word used in the ESV is consecrate Aaron and his sons. It's to make them unique, to separate them from the norm so that they can be used by God in his service. Here's how you are to do this. Here, Moses, is how you are to facilitate making these sinful men pure and holy enough to serve me in my presence without being consumed by my holy fire. Ready? Verse 1. This is what you shall do to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bulls and the two the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Verse 7, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you, verse 10, shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Are you getting the image? A couple of guys wearing funny clothes, hats, putting their hand on the head of a bull. Then, verse 11, you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. That's a sin offering. Then verse 15, you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Verse 19, you shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of that ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, on the tips of his right ears of his sons and on the thumb of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet. It's better than big toe, great toe, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then, verse 21, you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, that is, separate from the norm. They are not normal anymore. They are exclusively set apart for God's use. And his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the right thigh, specifically for it is a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then 
after you've done all that murder and all that blood and all those cakes of flour, then, verse 25, you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the breasts of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. That means eat, eat a meal. You getting tired yet? Verse 27, think about my kids last night at bedtime. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of the ordination from what was Aaron's and his son's. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, that is to say, who comes into the presence of God, shall wear these things for seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. None of these things are to be overlooked, omitted, or skipped. Perpetually, generation by generation. Verse 33, they shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for ordination or the bread remain until the morning, then you will burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them. This is the question that I asked my kids last night. Why is this here? Why is this in the Bible? Why are we reading this? Why did God preserve this? Why is this called the inspired word of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's a lot more direct, understandable, and succinct than 35 verses of obscure religious ceremony. Why is this here? Listen, friends. All of that is what is required to make a sinful man able to stand in the presence of God without being consumed by his fire, by his holiness. That's an awful lot of rigmarole, isn't it? That's a lot of, you gotta slaughter this guy and sprinkle this here and make this bread and put these clothes on. You gotta do this for a week. Nothing shall be skipped. You eat this, they eat that, they eat it here. No one else eats it. In the morning, burn it. The kidney, the fiber, the fat, the fiber, the, the ram's right thigh, this goes here. That, that, that's a lot of stuff. Burn this, eat that, sprinkle this, say that, wave this, hold this. It takes a lot to make a sinful man able to stand in the presence of God without being consumed by his righteousness. It took nothing short of the blood of Christ to make you and I able to stand in God's presence and not be consumed by his righteousness. But then comes the question, do these things make these men holy? Just skip down the page a few verses, verse 44. 
God says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Consecrate, again, means set apart as holy. Aaron also and his sons. What does it say? Are you, did, you, did you close your Bible? You think I was done? I'm not done. Aaron and his sons also, God says, I will consecrate them. so that they can serve me as priests. Now, hold on a second. You shall, you shall. Verse 8, you shall bring. Verse 9, you shall gird. Verse 10, you shall bring. Verse 11, you shall kill. Verse 12, you shall take. You shall, you shall, you shall. Aaron and his sons shall. Moses, you shall. You do. You do. And then, in the end, Who is it that accomplishes the work of making a sinful man able to stand in the presence of God? God says, I I will consecrate them. Is it all the action of man? Or is it the simple grace gift of God? It's obviously God's working that makes the man holy, that makes the man or woman able to stand in his presence. He will consecrate them. So does that make verses 1 through 35 completely irrelevant and unnecessary now? God consecrates them. So do they bother with all the rigmarole? With all the... Right? Are they null and void? Are they unnecessary? No. Their obedience is required. Their obedience is required, and it's God who does the work. You see this, friends. Do you see it? Your obedience is required, Romans 13, 8 through 14. You are to put off. You are to put on. You are to make no provision for the flesh. You are to starve, confess, and wage war with your secret sins. But is it your waging war with your secret sins? Is it your putting off and putting on? Is that what saves you? No. God says, I will consecrate you. And your obedience is required. You do not save yourself by your obedience, but your obedience is required, and I will consecrate you. It's a conundrum, but here's the deal, friends. We are called to obey. Our obedience doesn't save us, it doesn't cleanse us, it doesn't purify us, it is the Lord who does this. And in humility, we recognize that our clean standing before the Lord is a direct result of his kindness and not our obedience. Does this motivate rebellion or loving obedience, friends? It motivates love, doesn't it? Well, in the end, this section in Romans 13 is all about love fulfilling the law. We, we've discussed how loving God and loving man involves specifically what we put off, what we put on in practice. And so just briefly here at the end, we're done. Number three, what is love? Right? Put this on, take this off. What is love? Well, friends, it's greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Love is sacrificial. Love is completely others-centered. Biblical love is to lay one's life down, to count his life as less valuable than the other. Jesus did this tangibly for us, we who he calls his friends. 
Are we called then to physically die in order to show someone else love? Is that the only way? Well, maybe, right? The time might come for you to, you know, be Spider-Man, right? And throw your life in danger in order to save someone else's. But for most of us, such a dramatic choice uh, will never present itself. And if that's the case, which it is, how are we to do what Jesus said? Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friend. How are we to lay down our lives for our friends if we can't push him out of the way and take the incoming train on the face? How? Well, the answer is in the sacrifice of truth in love. It's the sacrifice of truth being declared in love. When the Christian holds to the truth about the state of man and the only possible reconciliation with God through Christ, we risk losing everything. When we tell our friend, our neighbor, our relative, that they are desperately lost in their sins and the only way to be at peace with God and have peace for eternity, to have peace in their souls and true joy in their hearts, to escape the fiery judgment, is to confess their sins and call Jesus Lord. That is the only way. When we say this, we risk the death, for lack of a better term, of the relationship. We risk killing any hope of peaceful interaction with them in the future. When the parent of the child who has surrendered to the LGBTQ inclination speaks truth in love that such people will not inherit the kingdom of God, you risk losing your relationship with them forever. You lay your life down you risk the death of any hope of the future of meaningful, intimate relationship with your child, who you love, who you raised, who you nurtured, who you fed from your body, who you bled, you, you sweated and you worked for to provide for, and taught and protected. You risk killing the relationship by telling them the truth in love. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. What is love? Love is being willing to lose everything to tell the truth in love. The liberal activist would have you believe that the Christian who affirms and condones that which Paul has commanded us to put off is the loving one. Love is love, so says the slogan. If you love people, you'll accept them and affirm them for who they are. You'll affirm their gender, gender identity. You'll affirm their homosexuality. You'll affirm their spirituality. That's real love, they say. And while it sounds kind and accepting, and it sounds like biblical Christianity, the scriptures say the exact opposite. Remember, friends, in the, prodigal, in the story of the prodigal son, being reclothed is equivalent to being reborn. 
put these things off and put these things on and be made alive. This is our instruction and this is our message. Well, let's take the week and meditate on these things. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we uh, come before you this morning with heavy hearts in many cases. There is no getting around the challenge that these scriptures pose to us both personally and what they mean for life in this particular society. We ask that you would help us and that you would teach us. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for one last song.